So I'm up on top of a mountain and it's awesome. It feels amazing. You know what? I'm just gonna come out and say it. I love being up here. Something inside me is saying, hey man, good job getting up there. You're in a good place. But actually, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, from a biological hardwiring perspective, my body shouldn't be rewarding me for coming up into the mountains. This place has nothing to offer a human organism. It's cold. There's no food. You can't grow any food. If I trip and I fall down that ridge, I'll probably roll down and die. I shouldn't be getting this bonus of good feelings for coming up here. I just burned precious ATP climbing up to somewhere. It's a total waste of time, survival-wise. It should be yelling at me, you're insane, go back to sea level. No, but that's, that's exactly how it is with nature. It doesn't always make sense how we feel about it. It doesn't directly correlate. I mean, shouldn't it be that something is more beautiful the more beneficial it is to us? Like, shouldn't our brain recognize a clump of carrots or a squash as the most beautiful thing in nature? And no offense to that stuff, it's good looking, but what is it that really captivates us? Rugged mountains and canyons and torrential waterfalls and all this stuff that we shouldn't be messing around with, but we're getting something out of it. But what? Like, what am I getting out of it? Just to be able to see that far and the way that the light is, the deep, complex stuff that I'm feeling, perspective, peace, connection, why? Why do cultures across time and geography consistently build their monasteries and meditation centers up in the mountains? What exactly am I experiencing up here? And maybe more importantly, why? Well, I think it's because this mountain is an image of something. And to unpack what that means, we've got to start with something much smaller. Hey everybody, welcome to Swedenborg and Life. Today we're going to be looking at the secrets of the mountain and what that means for your mind. Sounds pretty intense, is it? Well, it is intense. My name is Curtis Childs and I'll be your host. This is our co-host, Dr. Jonathan Rose. Hey, Curtis. Thanks so much for hanging out. So we're going to be getting back up to the mountain and what's going on there. But first, we've got a little bit of groundwork that we have mm. to lay. Swedenborg wrote that to solve any problem, you just add equal measure of the following two ingredients. Hearts and stars? No, those are, those are icons, man. I thought we could summarize. Oh, he, oh okay. He uses these so much, oh, but these are symbolic. His, okay. his two existential building blocks, love and truth. Oh, yes. Those are the problem solvers for sure. Okay, man. good, because I've got a, a problem for us. Okay, what's that? The state of the human race. Oh, is that all? Well, so if you look out at us, it, we're a mess. I mean, that's how it seems sometimes, yeah. anyway. So yeah, we can get things done, we built some roads and the post office works most of the time, but look at the way that we are to each other. Mm. We've all heard about the wars and the poverty and the environmental disaster, but that stuff bears repeating because it, it's messed up. Yeah, it's like we are blind to the big picture or something. You run into lots of nice people everywhere, but when you look at the collective action, the things that we prioritize, the things that we ignore or let go, it's like we've got our heads underground or yes. something. It seems to me like we think about profit when we should be thinking about empathy, and we do really short-sighted things on a global scale. I don't know if we're evil, but maybe just impulsive. like. We know you're supposed to do the right thing, but we just don't do it. Yeah, sometimes, is it, is it greed? Is it pettiness? Is it pride? Uh, a lot of the times it seems like it may just be laziness or just inertia, <laughs> like we genuinely don't know 
how to stop. Yeah. 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 We know the general direction humanity should go in. Everyone knows we can make the world a better place, you know, more just, more loving, but we don't know how to get there. It's like we've got the love side of things, but, but where's the truth? Mm. Like where's the instruction manual for human ethics? Is it still in the box that we came in? Well, yes, in fact. The instructions are still in the box, but it's just such an amazing box that we came in that sometimes we forget what we're looking at. Oh, okay, so it's by the box that we came in, you're talking about nature? Yes, and not only is nature obviously tied up with human evolutionary history, but Swedenborg wrote that before there were sacred texts, nature itself was the first revelation, first instructions from God to humanity, and that information is still in there. Yeah, and the journey that we're going to be taking tonight is we're going to learn how to start reading this revelation. Mm, that's cool. So remember, we were up on the mountain seeing how it was something more, how it was actually an image of something. And we're going to start by looking at this principle of being an image of something, but we're going to choose something much smaller than a mountain. How about the human eye? But before we get there, we need to back up a little bit and just define what we mean by being an image. Wouldn't that take the priority, don't you think? I think so. So first, what does it mean to be an image of something? Well, it can mean a lot of things. We've got a good solid nine definitions from Merriam-Webster. Let's see, a reproduction or imitation? No. Exact likeness? No. Aha, a tangible or visible representation. That's getting closer. How we're defining it here is this. The entire nature of something is displayed in its image. The characteristics, tendencies, and behaviors that make something what it is are indexed there, like a working summary. It's pretty abstract, right? How's this for an example? The human eye is an image of light. Put another way. If we think about a human eye, it's, it's perfectly designed to just take advantage of exactly what light does and how light behaves. Uh, why it's so perfectly matched is that what, what we call light, visible light, is a small, just small chunk of a much broader spectrum of just uh, radiation, electromagnetic radiation. And it, it has a, a certain wavelength, which is basically energy. Longer wavelengths are lower energy, shorter wavelengths, higher energy. Light coming into the eye, light has this refractive quality, meaning light waves, light, uh, light travels like a wave. Uh, light waves can be bent. And normally when light, when light does bend is when it goes from one medium, like traveling through air, to say traveling through water. If we think about that, if you look at something underwater, it looks like it's separated because the light changes medium and then it moves differently through a different medium. So when the light comes into a human eye, it's moving through air with a certain refractive index that talks about how light moves. It uh, passes through a human cornea, which has a pretty different refractive index. That makes the light bend. It uh, takes advantage of that refractive quality. That bent light now uh, shoots toward a lens. The lens doesn't really, re uh, doesn't really refract it anymore. It, it focuses it slightly and then sends those focused bent waves, refracted waves, back to the retina. So think kind of like projector and then screen, right? So I've, I've come through a cornea, I've gotten driven toward a lens and then focused a little bit more and then projected onto the retina. Um, that kind of receiving screen, retina, that has all these little cells, rods and cones, uh, differently active cells with different chemicals in them that when, when light, when energy of a certain wavelength hits these cells, it, it starts a little chemical reaction. 
Um, so then that's that like really cool adaptability part. Light or, or radiation of any different wavelength, if it's hitting the retina, would do nothing. We don't, we don't pick up um, UV light or we don't pick up um, infrared light. Only, only our visible light of a certain wavelength starts that chemical reaction when it hits one of those cells that then goes to an electrical impulse that we perceive as, hey, I see something. Right, so our eyes let us see. They allow us to understand our environment and know our reality. But really, the eye is just a biological interface between light and the mind. I mean, the information is really in the light. So in a way, it's almost like light itself is an eye. And using modern science and technology, we're able to take that eye that light is and look much more deeply at the nature of reality. What's incredible is that most of what's going on with matter, we can't actually see with our eyes. We can't see the molecules in the air, and we can't see you know all of the uh, dynamics that we understand. All the complicated, you know, the like in the atmosphere, the ozone layer and carbon dioxide and all those things. But using uh, lasers and using spectroscopy and the detectors that we have in the lab, we can study light on that level. I'm a laser spectroscopist, and we use a special kind of laser, uh, pulsed laser, where the pulse duration of the light. We use pulses of light that are as short as the motions in molecules. So molecules uh, rotate or vibrate in space on very short time scales, on this time scales um, approaching millionths of billionths of seconds. Uh, and so we can't see those with, the, you know, you can't study that with the eye or with any other way than using a pulse of light that's short enough to um, interact on that time scale. Basically, we use the ultra-fast laser pulse like a camera. The short pulse acts like a shutter. And so as the molecules are spinning very quickly, the light comes in when the molecule is stationary because the pulse is so much shorter than the molecular motion. And so we get a snapshot of what the shape of that molecule is. And the way we get this, the actual picture we take isn't an image. It's the light will change when it uh, interacts with the molecule depending on the position of the molecule. So at each point in the motion of the molecule, we get a picture of how the light is changing color as the molecule moves. And we can use that information to interpret the shape of the molecule and also the energy of rotation of the molecule or vibration, depending on what we're looking at. We've just shown two ways that the eye is an image of light. First, it's perfectly adapted to the characteristics of light. If you'd never encountered light before, you could reverse engineer the eye and figure out a lot about it. Second, the role that the eye plays for the human body is the same information-providing role that light itself can play to help us understand the rest of the universe. Okay, so we've got some guy hyped up about a mountain and this thing about light and the eye, but don't worry, it's all coming together. We looked at how the physical can be an image of the physical. But now, let's step just slightly off the beaten path and look at how something physical can be an image of something psychological. Yep, we're going to do it. We're going to look here at how something physical, like the process of sight, can be an image of something psychological, our capacity to understand things. So to illustrate... Say you need to find your rake to do a quick bit of yard cleanup before going to the office. You remember that you left the rake at the far side of the garage, but the lights burned out, so you have to head across the garage in the dark. 
Without being able to see, it's really hard to accomplish the mission of getting the rake. There's confusion involved, there's pain involved, some damage done, some messes made. It takes a lot longer, which is frustrating. And there's a smaller chance of the mission being accomplished as soon as you would have hoped. Being able to see makes the whole mission a lot faster and easier. So as you can see from that, adding light has a huge effect on a person's ability to navigate a garage. Like this lets us see where the obstacles are and how to focus on our goal correctly and correctly understanding things has the same effect on our ability to navigate human psychological problems. So instead of boxes and rakes, we're navigating things like morality and interpersonal relationships, but we need the truth in those just like we need light in a dark room. So it's not just an approximate metaphor, there's a direct correspondential correlation. Our ability to understand actually comes from spiritual light in our minds. So introducing the truth into a mind is just like flicking on the lights. So the link between sight and understanding isn't too much of a stretch. I think a lot of people will give you that to various extents, but why would that link stop at just the eye? The eye is just a part of the body and our capacity to understand is just a part of our mind. And our body isn't just a reflection of physics, it's a reflection of the whole natural world. Our hands and wrists reflect the forces necessary to obtain and manipulate food and other stuff in all kinds of environments. Our feet and ankles allow us to adapt to varying terrain and outrun threats. Our lungs let us collect the oxygen that's only available because of all these plants around us. The characteristics of the natural world are all through us, inside and out. We're one with nature in our body. And the missing piece that just could explain the mountaintop experience is that we're also one with nature in our minds. It's not that there are two isolated worlds, the human psychological world of learning and personal growth and aspiration and symbolism, and then the outer world of rocks and angles and food and survival, and that they never talk to each other and they never cross paths, except in the fact that we could ponder the meaning of existence and eat nachos at the same time. The crossover between sight and understanding isn't just an isolated thing, just a cool coincidence. No, to use this concept in action, it's the tip of the iceberg. The world of the mind and the world around us are completely related because the two worlds are the same thing, just on different levels. Is there any research out there that suggests this crossover of sight and understanding in the brain? I think there is. First, we need to ask, what's the purpose of sight? To know your environment, to build a 3D map of space, to be able to know about and navigate your environment like in the garage. Right. People without sight need to do this too. They rely on other sensory input to bypass sight to get the same result. What's that? Spatial information, knowing that 3D map and understanding their environment. And research has found that for blind people who use echolocation, the sound information roots through the visual cortex. So their brains use echoes to generate spatial maps and fMRI scans show activity in the visual processing region of the brain. So whether sighted or not, you can think of gaining this knowledge as perception. And this spatial perception is routed through the visual cortex. A blind person is using their visual cortex to perceive the space they are in 
even if the incoming data is oral or tactile. So there's got to be some connection there. So they're processing their input from other senses in the same brain region as a seeing person processes sight. That's amazing. Yeah. We're used to making this distinction between the sensory world and the psychology of higher cognitive functions, but the brain seems to link them in an intimate way. It does this linking of the sensory and the cognitive happen more broadly too, or is it just with sight? Yeah, something really interesting is that the brain actually processes literal and metaphorical versions of a concept in the same brain region. So our neural circuitry doesn't cleanly differentiate between what's real and what's symbolic. And this has inspired an area of research on how the brain confuses metaphors and reality. A review in the New York Times called This Is Your Brain on Metaphors cites several studies that explore how we can manipulate human behavior through how the brain confuses reality and symbolism. If you want to read a whole book on it, check out Sensation, The New Science of Physical Intelligence by Thalma Lobel. Well, cool. So what did some of them find? Well, of the several studies cited in the New York Times review, in one, participants were asked to call to mind either a moral or an immoral act of theirs. Then at the end of the study, they're offered a gift. They can choose either a pencil or a pack of wipes. Those who had called to mind an immoral act were more likely to choose the wipes. In another study, participants were asked to rate job applicants, but the clipboards of some of the applicants were heavier for, than others. Those who had the heavier clipboards rated the applicant under consideration as being more serious. I think he's the one. Then one of the most wild examples to me is one where a volunteer is waiting for the study to begin and a researcher comes in and she's juggling all these folders and paper and she's also holding a cup of coffee, either hot or iced. She briefly asks the volunteer to hold her coffee for her. Ooh, that's hot. Then, when the study seems to actually be beginning, the volunteer is asked to read a description of an individual and then rate them on certain qualities. What's amazing is that the people who had held the hot coffee rate the individual as specifically having a warmer personality, but in all other respects, don't rate them differently than the people who held the iced coffee did. Okay, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah so this, this neural confusion about the literal versus the metaphorical gives symbols this really enormous power. So do you think there could even be some kind of spiritual evolutionary purpose to all this? Yeah, perhaps it's not a mistake at all, but a way that we've been prepared to see spiritual principles within the physical environment we inhabit. Both levels of our existence, inner and outer, are manifestations of the same underlying reality. But the physical world is like the ripples, and the inner world is like the currents and the rocks underwater. We have forests in us, our wisdom and intelligence as it grows. We have rivers in the way that we understand the flow of life. What deceptive webs are we caught up in? Just like the wolf seeks out a fawn, the fierce emotions in us prey on what's gentle. There's an ecosystem in the mind. Everything that plays out in the grand drama of nature happens on an individual level in us. And what we learn about how things go on out here shows us in the language it speaks what goes on in here. So everything around us, everything we see, eat, run away from has physical information, but it also has a deeper level of psychological or spiritual information. Everything does, even mountains. So is there more going on here than just rock and altitude? Am I, am I feeling like this? Because I'm tapping into not just the height and the composition of a mountain, but the meaning of a mountain too. Okay, so, well then what is that meaning? What, what does a mountain mean to the mind? Yes, here's what Swedenborg learned in answer to that question. This is Secrets of Heaven 795. Among the earliest people, 
mountains symbolized the Lord because it was on mountains that they held worship to Him. Now that doesn't tell us what that means about the mind yet, but one of the symbolisms is the Lord. And he explains their reason for doing so was that mountains were the highest points on earth. Makes sense, doesn't it? Consequently, mountains symbolize heavenly qualities. Here we get to the mind. Love and charity. And so the good effects of love and charity. In other words, love and charity in action, which are heavenly. And people also referred to these things as most high. So from ancient times, mountains have symbolized both God, and it's cool that they're so vast and so high, that they symbolized God, but they also symbolize the qualities, the highest qualities that we receive from God. And those highest qualities are surely the love that God gives us in our hearts, and then the actions that we take when we see that somebody needs help or whatever, uh, the things that we do out of love for our neighbor, that love and that charity, that's what is meant in our mind by these mountains. And Swedenborg gives many examples from the Bible. There are lots of mountains that are mentioned in the Bible, and here's just a sampling of what he says about them and what those passages mean. The mountains will bring peace, as will the hills, in justice. Take yourself up onto a high mountain, you who bring good news to Zion. Lift your voice with strength, you who bring good news to Jerusalem. Let those who live on the crag sing, from the head of the mountains let them shout. It will be that on every high mountain and on every lofty hill there will be brooks, channels of water. So are you noticing a theme here? Mountains are an image of love. These religious traditions are drawn to mountains because this is a giant word in the language nature speaks. Just like a word on paper, this isn't love itself. It's rock and it's dirt, and if you're not careful, you'll get hurt on it. But it is a packet of information, this giant hieroglyph, a correspondence between the non-physical world of something like love and terra firma. And it's like this, not just because it's reminding me of something higher, no pun intended. Wait, no, that's the whole point, pun intended. It's not a pun. It's just an obvious instance of us realizing that the physical outer world and the one we feel like occurs only in our hearts and minds parallel each other in some mystical way. That something like height can provide a framework that lets us describe and understand something like taking the high road. Ah, I did it again. 
A mountain is love. And I'm not just talking about romantic love. I'm talking about love wherever it appears. Wherever you're feeling the joy of someone else as joy in yourself, it's written into it. And you can see it in every detail of the mountain experience. First of all, look how far I can see. We talk about sight as understanding, and isn't it only from love, from the top of the mountain, that you can really understand someone else, when I can really understand what life is like for you? You could tell me about your life, about your valley, your situation and experiences, but if I'm still down in the forest of my own ideas, it's beautiful and I could get some insights, but when I take the time to climb up to love, to actually care about how you feel, when I actually want to understand you, not just because I need something, but because I really want to help, that's the first time when I really start to see you for who you are. It's only from love that we understand that we're not isolated, that we're actually part of a whole, the place where I meet you you, the way to navigate the distances in between, and the same sky that we're all under. And you notice how mountains aren't like a couch or a bed. Mountains are work. Getting all the way up to love is a journey, and it takes work, and you need knowledge, and you need tools, and you really should be making the trip with other people to help you out in the toughest parts. Plus, when it's windy and it's cold on the ground, it's going to be that much worse up here. Isn't that like how in relationships and society, when it's stormy, it's that much harder to make it up to love. It's that much easier to say, ah, forget it, I'm not even gonna try. And realistic expectations. When you get to the top of the mountain, you don't think, I'm gonna stay up there. I mean, when you climb back down, you're not, oh, what's wrong with me? Why am I back down on the bottom of the mountain? We can't stay up there. We're not used to the altitude. Our, our kitchens are down here. But the more often you do it, the better shape you get in, the easier that it gets. Why could Martin Luther King Jr. say, I have been to the mountaintop, and we all knew what it meant? Nobody's out there saying, hey, is now really a good time to be doing all this hiking? And King himself is echoing the mountaintop moment that Moses had. And this imagery shows up in crucial moments across cultures and centuries because the trip up a mountain isn't practical and mundane. Well, this just lets you see the best route since we don't have a satellite map already. The mountain is symbolic. It's universal. It's part of the way the process of reaching love is written into the world. If we want to get to the promised land, the place I think we all want to get to, despite our clashing indifferences, love, compassion, a functional, efficient, holistic dwelling together, you can't just wander into it. You've got to have the perspective and the insight that can only come from making the journey. And we gain insight into how to get to that insight by what it's actually like to climb up a mountain. It's teaching me. The mountain is teaching me. I'm up here and it feels amazing because the mountain is saying, look at the potential. Look at what life could be like. It's the spirit. It's the spiritual message within the physical and it's about love. Yes, hiking up a physical hill by itself isn't going to solve societal issues or oppression or dysfunction or apathy. But going up to love, that's the mountaintop. <laughs>